feel like I ask you every week, but how y'all doing? Y'all doing good? Again, I know if you weren't, you wouldn't tell me, so it's all good. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm always excited whenever we can come together as a church and we can come together around the Word um, and we can look to see what it says and how it applies to our lives, so um, I'm hoping, hoping that you all find this as as enjoyable as I do. I love it whenever we can open the Word together. So today we're going to be starting a, a new series. And don't worry, if you want to open your Bibles, we're still going to be in Matthew. I'm just, we're just going to be doing it under a different title because we're entering a new section of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 5 today. Um, and Matthew 5 marks a, a beginning of a new section in Matthew. So we're going to start looking at this, this Sermon on the Mount, this Sermon on the Mount. Now, you all don't know this because I never put it on a screen. I don't think I ever told you this, but that last series that we just looked at in the first four chapters of Matthew, um, I had secretly in my own time been calling it Intro to Jesus um, because it's kind of his introduction to not only the world, but also in his ministry. It was the introduction to how all of that got started, how he called his first disciples, how he was baptized, he was tempted. All of those things were kind of in this introduction to who Jesus is, and there's a lot in just that introduction to who Jesus is that we can apply to our lives. Um, but see, today, today we hit this, uh, this first sermon. And in my opinion, this Sermon on the Mount um, that we're going to be looking at and we're going to be going through over the next few weeks is foundational to the Christian faith. It's foundational to the Christian faith. The words of Jesus in this sermon, they are so incredibly weighty, yet they are still exceptionally applicable. Every single one of us should read this Sermon on the Mount, and when we do, actually say, how does this apply to my life today? I promise there is application in this sermon for you. Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for five minutes or 50 years, doesn't matter. There is application for you in the Sermon on the Mount. Every single one of us can grow, and we can become more like Christ through these words. Um, one author, he actually wrote about this, and he said that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that, has, that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. This is how Jesus describes what his followers look like. He says, this is what a follower of Jesus is. This is what they are to do. This is who we should be as Jesus' followers here in Jesus' own words. And I don't want us to miss the goodness of this sermon or the goodness that comes with applying in our lives today. Now, before we, before we actually get to the text, though, I do want to say there is no possible way we can cover all this. There have been volumes written on just the first ten verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Like, volumes and volumes written. So if you think we're going to get through all of it over the next few weeks, you're dreaming. There's no way. So we're going to have to paint this with pretty broad strokes, but I would encourage you, consider these words and how they apply to your life. Consider them and how they apply to your life, okay? So hopefully over the coming weeks we can clarify a few things. Maybe we can learn a little bit about what it means to be a more faithful follower of Jesus, and I look forward to diving into this sermon together. Now I know you've already been up and down a few times, but I'm going to ask you to stand again. Let's stand out of respect for reading God's word, and we're going to read Matthew 5. Um, we're going to, again, paint a broad stroke this morning. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. Okay. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and to to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this time, as we open this word, Lord, I pray that you would guide us and help us to see what your word says. Help us to understand what your word says and help, it, help us to submit to your rule. Father, I know you've, uh, you've said through Jesus and through your, uh, through your prophet John that we should repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Father, today I, I pray that you would help us to see that your kingdom... The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come near. This rule and your reign, your power, your authority over things has come. And Lord, I pray that we would submit to it and that we would live as citizens of your kingdom. So Father, help us today to see what that means. Help us to apply that to our lives and help us to apply the words of your son Jesus to our lives today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus, last week, he started his teaching, his preaching, this healing all over the region of Galilee, and now this crowd begins to follow him, right? I mean, if you knew that there was somebody who was curing people of diseases and he was preaching this radical teaching, um, you're probably going to want to at least go hear what he's got to say, and you're going to want to see what he's doing. So all of these people, they're coming and they begin to follow after him and they're beginning to pursue him, and undoubtedly, many wanted to be healed or have their loved ones healed, and Jesus... He's a man, right? Which means he probably gets tired. Right? Jesus, I'm sure, was tired. So here in the text, we see that as the crowds begin to come in and press in on him, he he retreats to the mountain. And I say retreat carefully. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he's running away from their problems. Jesus can handle it. But at the same time, he's going to a place where he's going to be a little more secluded. He goes up on a mountain or on a hill and he sits down. And this sitting down, it's a pretty significant thing because this was the posture that a a rabbi would take. Whenever a rabbi would come in to start teaching his disciples, he would sit and then he would begin to teach. Okay, And here Jesus sits down indicating that he's about to teach his disciples, that he is their rabbi. And when he did, it says his disciples came to him. Now, I think this is an important question to ask. Who are his disciples? Who are his disciples? And there is a whole broad range of opinions on just that word. Okay, who are his disciples here? I'm going to tell you that I believe that it's likely more than the 12. We think of the 12. However, here in Matthew, he hasn't even called all the 12 yet. And this early in his ministry, he likely has not called all of the 12 yet. So it's likely more than the 12 apostles who would later follow after Jesus. 
As a matter of fact, there are other instances in the New Testament that the term disciples is actually used like a multitude of disciples. It's more broad than just these 12 guys. This is a group of followers that are coming after him. So we certainly don't want to limit this to his 12, but those, but those who are coming after him and want to be more fully attached to Jesus' teachings. That's who he's talking to. Those who want to attach themselves to his teachings, to this rabbi, to Jesus. They're wanting to attach themselves to what he has to say. So they follow after him. And I think it's worth pointing out that in verse 2, before he ever opens his mouth and he begins teaching, it says, Then he began to teach them, saying... Um, by the way, I don't, I don't personally think that's a good translation. Some of you probably have something different. If you're an NIV reader, it says he began to teach them. He said, literally what the text says here, literally what the text says here in verse 2 is that, and, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying... And that's actually what it says in the New American Standard, and I think it says that in the ESV. I don't remember. But the point is, it adds something different there, right? Most of our modern translations say, say he began to teach them, saying this. But literally it says, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Now, this is important because literally what this is indicating is that, that something big is about to happen, Okay, um, most of the times whenever it says he opened his mouth and began to teach, or it's used in Old Testament context, what it's saying is that there is something solemn or revelatory, something that is, some revelation from God is about to happen. That's what this phrase is. It's a marker saying, Jesus is about to drop a truth bomb. That's what he's saying. Something big is coming. Something that is going to radically change his hearers is coming. He's about to teach this fundamental shift in their thinking. So, Jesus prepares them, or Matthew prepares us as he records Jesus' words by saying he opened his mouth and he taught them. So, I hope you all are ready for something that is going to be earth-shattering. This bomb that's about to be dropped on your life because Jesus just shakes everything with this sermon. Changes everything. See, we oftentimes look at the Christian faith as a, as a minor alteration, um, we, we really do, even if we don't want to admit it. Like, we know, well, it's supposed to be a complete shift in everything, right? Even if we know that on some level, oftentimes whenever we think of what does it mean to live the Christian life, we think of it as some minor alteration, like, I just need to take a different route to where I was going, but ultimately the goal's like, it's all the same. So that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's about to change absolutely everything. See, we look, we look at our world from a, from a top-to-bottom perspective, right? We all want to get to the top. We're all trying to climb the ladder. We're trying to get things that are going to make us more comfortable or make life easier for us. And we look at, how can I climb this ladder? How can I get closer to the top? But I always look at it like a pyramid. We're trying to get to the point on the pyramid. And we spend our lives pursuing that, chasing after that. And Jesus comes in and he says, no, no, no. Everything that you know is going to change. All of it is different than you think. The goal is not to get to the top. Instead, Jesus says that the first will become last, or the greatest is the least, right? We see him flip it on its head. So if it's a pyramid, now it's standing on that point, and Jesus is that point. And if we're pursuing him, we want to be the servant of others. Instead of just saying, serve me, serve me, serve me, we're now saying, how can I serve others? How can I help others? How can I build others? You see how Jesus changes that. And Jesus is going to do that through this sermon. He's going to tell them everything that you think is different from what you thought it was before. So he begins to teach this new and dramatic shift. And, and on this, one author, John Stott, he says, To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better or indicate more clearly this sermon's challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. 
Church, we should be different than our culture. Different. As a matter of fact, that's part of the reason I, I wanted to call this series Counterculture, um, simply because several different authors in writing on the Sermon on the Mount say this is a countercultural view. It's completely contrary to what the world will teach us. The world says you should be this, and Jesus says, oh, no, 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 that's not what you pursue. This is what you pursue. This is how you live. It's completely different. So authors like John Stott, D.A. Carson, David Platt, they all refer to the way that Christians should live in a way that is countercultural. All of them do. And it's shown right here in this sermon. So I hope you all are prepared. hope you all are ready for this countercultural view, for this sermon that Jesus is about to drop on these people and shake everything that they knew before. And remember, many of these people were Jewish people. These were faithful people who thought they knew what they were doing. They thought that they were pursuing the right things. And Jesus says to them, no, no, everything is about to change. Everything is about to change. So as he starts this, he shows what his followers should look like, shows how they should be different. And that's what I want to look at today is these activities that are characteristic of Jesus' followers. And the first of these is that, well, the first activity is that we must redefine our concept of blessedness. We think of what it means to be blessed, and we need to completely and totally redefine it. Um, I actually thought about saying that we need this concept to be redefined for us, because Jesus actually does that. He defines it. He defines what blessedness looks like. What I'm saying is we need to change our way of thinking to line up with Jesus' way of thinking. We need to stop seeing blessedness the way the world sees it. Instead, we should see it the way Jesus sees it. So here, Jesus dives into what has become known as the Beatitudes. It's Beatitudes, and I hope most of you are familiar with that term, Beatitudes. Um, as a matter of fact, if you have a heading in your Bible on this section, it probably says the Beatitudes or something along those lines. And here, he dives into this. And what Beatitudes mean, it literally, it comes from the Latin word that means blessed. It means supreme blessedness, like the greatest blessedness. And these are descriptions of what the blessed or the most blessed person looks like. And they are radically different than what we would often think. Because oftentimes, we think of blessedness in terms of um, material prosperity. Uh, We do, right? I mean, I'm not alone in that, am I? Y'all sometimes think of it in those contexts, right? I think all of us do. I mean, we think of financial success, or our business takes off, or uh, we have a bumper crop, or or maybe instead of, of financial success, you think of it in terms of another kind of material prosperity. You think of it in terms of family. Y'all, my wife's not in here today, so I can brag on her. I have a beautiful wife. I have three-plus wonderful kids. I have the greatest mom and dad in the world. I have brothers that would do literally anything for me, and I can't even complain about my in-laws. Y'all, I have an awesome family. So I look at my family, and I say, wow, I am truly blessed. I am truly blessed. Or sometimes we think about this material prosperity in terms of health. We think about it in terms of health right? We look around and we see, well, I'm in good health. My family's in good health. We are truly blessed. Y'all ever said anything like that or thought anything like that? Yeah. And by the way, since I'm on this, all of those things can, and I believe should, be considered blessings. So I'm not, I'm not knocking on people who say, wow, I'm, I've been truly blessed, because those things can and should be seen as blessings. But I think we need to be careful because they can also serve as curses, Every one of those things can be a curse if it leads us away from faith in Jesus. 
So we need to be careful whenever we say, I'm blessed for this or that reason. Instead of seeing blessedness strictly as material prosperity, we need to start seeing it as spiritual poverty. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Spiritual poverty leads to blessedness. Well, that's what Jesus says here. That's what he says here. And I'm going to explain what I mean here in just a moment. Because Jesus is about to go through this list of of beatitudes or blessednesses. Um, He's going to go through this. And in these eight verses... He's going to take these qualities that are opposite of what we would have often thought of as blessed. And he's going to say that these are the things that make a truly blessed person. So, we could, and we will to some degree, go through these one at a time and look at each one of them and say, here's what the blessed person is, here's what the blessed person does, and take each one of these qualities on their own and expound each. However, I think that would be inappropriate to do so without realizing these are meant to be seen as a group. These qualities are, or, or activities are meant to be seen as a group. And um, I'll show you why I believe so. There's actually a literary tool here that's being used. Um, and if you don't like literature or any of that stuff, then you're going to be like, Jared, move on. This is super boring. Yeah, I know. I'm with you most of the time. But there's this literary tool here called an inclusio. Y'all ever heard of an inclusio? Some of you are nodding. Some of you are with me. Some of you are like, no, I have no idea what that word means. Okay, basically what it means is there are literary markers at the beginning and the end of a section to signal to the reader that everything in between, it belongs in a package. Um, It's kind of like an envelope, and you have both sides just closing it in. Okay, so there's this inclusio here, and I hope with that word inclusio, you can hear the word inclusion. Everything in the middle there is included in this. Okay, so we see this inclusio when Jesus says in verse, I believe it's verse three, I actually didn't put a marker there, but he says, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Okay, and then again, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's down in verse 10. So you see, at this verse and this verse, both of them say, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And that forms this envelope, the two ends, the bookends, to this this section. So we see here, he's saying, these are the blessed people. And this repetition forms this envelope. So we need to see these Beatitudes as a unit, as one unit. Which is why I included them in one point here, saying that the follower of Jesus must redefine their concept or have their concept of blessedness redefined. Because Jesus says in the very first one here, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's why I used the term spiritual poverty a minute ago. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. One commentator called this a form of spiritual bankruptcy. See, the poor in spirit are those who realize that on their own, they have absolutely no merit. None. No merit. Nothing going in our favor. We stand guilty before God. I quoted John Stott once. I'd like to do so again. He said, we do not belong anywhere except alongside the publican in Jesus' parable, crying with downcast eyes, God be merciful to me, a sinner. As Calvin wrote, he who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercies of God is poor in spirit. Those who recognize there is nothing in themselves. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And only when we realize that we are completely destitute, completely hopeless on our own, and that we need God to intervene on our behalf, only then will we ever experience true blessedness. Only whenever we can say we are poor in spirit. 
And he goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Um, I believe this is referring to those who mourn over their sin. In some ways, I believe Jesus is reflecting on the Old Testament here. In Psalm 119, 136, it says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. And the point is, Jesus says that the blessed person are those that it's that person who mourns over their sin and that they will one day be comforted. He goes on, he says, blessed are the humble, or in your translation it may say, blessed are the meek. And this describes those who are gentle toward others, self-controlled, those who are not holding malice, hatred, or being harsh toward their fellow man. And Jesus says that this person, this humble or this meek person, they will inherit the earth. Now, does that mean that if you do this, you're going to receive lots of land, and you're going to be like, yeah, I inherited the earth. It's not what he's getting at here. Instead, what he's looking at is a future or an eschatological hope. In the end, whenever we see that the world is restored, then um, we, will see, we will see this hope fulfilled. Um, it's actually what Jesus would later call in Matthew 19, 28. He calls it the renewal of all things. At that time, we inherit the earth. Verse 6, he goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Did you know that as followers of Jesus, we should like, strongly desire, strongly desire God's righteousness, his justice, his perfection here on earth? So we should desire for the righteousness, for good things, for the right things to be done in the world in which we live. Because we know that God is just. And when we seek his righteousness, the righteousness of God, not some person's idea of righteousness or our own self-centered idea of righteousness but true, God-centered righteousness, God says we'll find it. He says we'll find righteousness. Do y'all want that? Like, do you want to know what it means to do the right things, to do good things? Seek his righteousness. Seek after it. Verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful. Well, I don't know if y'all know this, but as Christians, we should pursue forgiveness of others. We should pursue the forgiveness of others. I mean, Jesus taught this as he taught his disciples to pray, right? So if you all have ever said the Lord's Prayer, you've, you've actually said these words. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or for some of you who don't like that, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are, are, as we forgive our debtors. See, I can't even say it right. But he taught his disciples to pray this way. Pursue forgiveness. And we must show compassion for those who are needed. It's all included here in this idea of being merciful. And again... Jesus teaches that the outpouring of mercy leads to the reception of mercy. We see how those two things are tied together, both here and in the Lord's Prayer. Verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. I thought this was interesting. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Because that seems to create a problem for us. Is anybody doing that Bible reading plan that we've been doing as a church? Some of you have? Okay, I know some of you have been doing that Bible reading plan. Well, for those of you over the last couple of weeks, we just read about Noah, right? Just read about Noah. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Um, or if you're an NIV reader, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So we have a problem then, right? If the blessed person is the one who's pure in heart, but the Bible says that the human heart is nothing but evil all the time, how do we get here? Like, how can we be the blessed person? Well, again, the answer is, is really, I, it's simple in concept, incredibly difficult in practice. 
But it's, it's, it's this, it's to be born again. Be born again. The solution is for God to take your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh. That's the only way we're going to have a pure heart. Otherwise, our hearts are sinful and deceitful, and they'll lead us the wrong direction. We want to be pure in heart, then we need to, be, we need to have spiritual poverty, and we need to come to Jesus saying, I have no hope on my own, and ask him to give us that new heart. And when we have that new heart, it says that we will see God. Verse 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. I don't think I need to explain this one too much, do I? You guys know what it means to be a peacemaker, right? Don't stir up dissension. Don't stir up problems as much as it relies on you. Make peace with others. Y'all ever open like comments on a, on a, I don't know, a Facebook post and just read what somebody says to somebody else on there? Y'all ever done that? I'll just tell you, we're not naturally peacemakers. Like, don't go read the comments. It's not worth your time. I shouldn't say that. There maybe are some, but I don't know. For the most part, be a peacemaker. As much as it depends on you, make peace. Now, where it comes down to issues of God's word or making peace, we stick with God's word. There are times where there's going to be trouble that's unavoidable if we're following after Jesus. But as much as it depends on you, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. But see, the truth is, that when you live this way, the world is going to hate you. And in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. If you live this countercultural life, the world's not going to like it. The world will hate you when you stop just going with the flow. You're going to experience resistance. It's guaranteed in God's word that whenever we follow after him, we're going to experience trouble in this life. So, there's my hopeful message for you. It's going to cause problems whenever you start living counterculturally. Are you all upbeat yet? No? Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I like the conflict. Be a peacemaker then. There. No, he goes on though. He says, but those who follow after Jesus, they'll experience the kingdom of heaven. And notice, it's not just persecution here. Whenever you experience persecution for no reason, that's not what it says. He says, you're blessed whenever you experience persecution because of righteousness. When you experience persecution for doing the right things, for following after Jesus, following after him, then you'll be blessed. And this is how blessedness is defined as a citizen of the kingdom. See, we look at the person who's strong or the most outspoken or who gets their way. That's the person who's blessed. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that this, these characteristics are the ones that define the person who is blessed. And he even goes on and he strengthens it just after these Beatitudes. In verses 11 and 12, he says that, uh, that we, as followers of Jesus, we can rejoice and we can be glad when we are insulted, persecuted, and slandered because of our faith. We can consider ourselves blessed. We can be glad and rejoice even in the middle of persecution. Why? Well, because we know that we are only temporary citizens in this broken world. Did you all know that this isn't our final stop? This isn't the end. Instead, we wait for the restoration of all things when we experience the final consummation of the blessings of the kingdom. We get to experience the blessings of the kingdom as we follow after Jesus. So, Christian, those of you who are Christians in the room, profess to be followers of Jesus, I just want to urge you, understand that blessedness can describe material prosperity, but in a much greater way, it describes the one who knows the grace of God in Jesus and is living according to that grace. 
That's what blessedness describes. It's the one who understands I have no merit on my own. Instead, it all belongs to Jesus, and I want to follow after him, live like him, be like him, do like he did. I want to be like Jesus. And as we grow in that likeness, we can truly say, I'm blessed. As we grow in his likeness. So Jesus' followers, we must redefine our concept of blessedness. Second activity Jesus talks about here is as Jesus' followers, we must delay the decay of the world. Delay the decay of the world and also of our own morality if I'm just going to go that route. Verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And actually, as I was preparing this, I thought, haven't I talked about this before? Like, if y'all remember this, because I look back in my notes, I couldn't find anywhere I talked about this, so I have no idea. But it seems like I have, so y'all can correct me or tell me when I did that later, because I, don't, I really don't remember. But we're going to do it again, because we need to understand what Jesus is getting at here. We need to, get, we need to understand this, okay? We need to understand, partially, the cultural context, because that will help us understand what he's talking about whenever he says, you're the salt of the earth. We hear salt of the earth, and typically what we're talking about is some blue-collar person who just kind of keeps at it, and we're like, well, they're a real salt of the earth kind of person, right? Or somebody who's like of exceptional integrity, like just a real salt-of-the-earth person. And that's what we think of in our context today. But the biblical context, we need to understand what salt did and what Jesus was getting at here. First, salt was a flavor enhancer, right? Y'all ever put salt on anything to give it some flavor? Just so y'all know, if that chili tastes anything like it smells here in a little bit, you're not going to need much salt. It smells good. You're not going to need to enhance much. But not only was it a flavor enhancer, it was also a preserving agent. So what would happen is they would rub it into the meat to keep it from decaying so fast. They would take the salt, rub it into the meat, and the meat would decay slower. So Jesus is now using this very common mineral that was very common all over this area to explain what his disciples should do. He basically says, you are to preserve the culture that you're a part of. You're to be a preserving agent in the world that you live the word in the, in the Greek that, uh, that is translated as lose its saltiness, it actually means to make foolish, which I think is worth talking about. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is he says, if the salt has become like the rest of the world, or it takes on the foolishness of the rest of the world, it's not doing its job. It's useless. It's useless. Something similar is said over in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images and so on. My question is, have we become so foolish as to think we need to be like the rest of the world? Um, we're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. We're supposed to be different. Yeah, we live in the world. Sure. Sure, I'm not saying everything is always bad all the time. I don't believe that to be true. But whenever we start looking more and more like the world, and all of a sudden you can't see the line between the church and the world, we have a problem. We've missed the point somewhere because we should be different. We should be, we should be weird. And oftentimes people look at us and think we're very average, very normal. Should that be the case? Or have we lost our saltiness? See, we should be different. We cannot lose its, our saltiness. Jesus says that if it loses its saltiness, then it's not good for anything but to be thrown out. Fun fact, though. Um, salt, as a mineral compound, can it actually lose its saltiness? The, the answer is no. It can't. 
if it's actually salt, it does not lose the saltiness. Now, it can be diluted with water, but it can't actually lose the saltiness. But if we, again, understand the cultural context here, we know that oftentimes the way they, the way they got their salt wasn't like we would now from evaporating salt water or um, by mining it. Instead, their salt was, was gained through marshes. So there was all kinds of impurities in their salt. So there might be something as this, as this salt that they've used for these reasons, as a, for this preserving agent, there might be something that resembles that salt there. But really, the preserving agent, it's gone. It's been diluted and washed out. So all there is is something that might kind of resemble it a little bit, but it really has absolutely no value of its own. It lost its saltiness. Church, I don't want to be the waste stuff that's thrown out underneath and trampled under people's feet. I want us to be the salt, the preserving agent. So we need to do similar to what Jesus commands these people. And I think we've been especially equipped and commanded to work against the moral decay of our society. We're not meant just to come and sit in our nice facility and sit in our cushy blue chairs and think, yeah, things are all good because these chairs are soft and it's time for a nap. Nobody caught that, so I must be asleep already. That's good. Instead, we're charged by this change that we've received from Jesus. And if we're changed by that grace of God, then we should work against the moral decay of our culture. But that can't happen unless we're ready and willing to be different than the world around us. And I mean in practice. And there's too many areas to to go into, but there's so many ways that we should be different than the culture around us. Our priorities need to be different. Our concepts need to be different. Our actions need to be different. And if we look just like the rest of the world, I'm afraid we've lost our saltiness. So, Jesus followers, we need to redefine our concept of blessedness, and we need to delay the decay of the world. And then third, as Jesus followers, we must illuminate the darkness of the world. Must illuminate the darkness of the world. Verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Okay, I thought about this and it was perfect because I'm, I'm working on uh, building a room in my, my house right now. So I, I started putting these walls up. Um, the problem is the room there already has a light in it. It already has a light right in the middle of the room. But now I'm going to put a wall up where that light was. So I've got this wall now running right where the light was. Now let's just say I left that light where it is. And I go ahead and I build my wall there. Put the ceiling back up and just cover up over that fixture. Does that room have any light then? I mean, the light's still there. What happens to that room, though? It's dark. It's dark. Jesus says, you're not put there to put something over the top of it and hide it. That's not why it's there. It's there to light things, to actually bring light around it, to actually illuminate something. So we need to make sure that we understand Jesus has placed his lights in the world for a reason. We haven't just been given light for no purpose. No, there's a reason for it. That's to take the basket off the top and let the thing shine. Like, do something with it. It's supposed to be seen by others. And that's the truth. Jesus has placed you, has placed you where he wants you now. Where you are now, 
let your light shine, right? Now, listen, this is, this is incredibly simple. As a matter of fact, many of you probably learned this in elementary and Sunday school or, you know what, our Dots kids. Uh, I love it. We get to see 70 kids marching around this room going, this little light of mine. Um, like, seriously, I want you all to do it because it'd be fantastic. No, you don't have to. It, you all are like, that's too embarrassing. I'm not doing it. Um, no, we, have, we get like 70 plus kids up marching up and down these aisles singing this little light of mine. Like, it's awesome. These kids seem to get it, yet we as adults, we often are like, yeah, but you know, I think I'm going to put a basket on top of it. Seems like a good idea. It's a little too bright. I need to shade this down a little. Why do kids get it and we don't? Well, why is that? Jesus put you where he wants you so that you can let your light shine. Another fun fact and another bit of a grammar nerd here. Um, late in this sermon, or late in um, this section, in verse 16, he says, let your light shine. And the command, let shine, like let shine, is plural. So in other words, what he's saying is y'all let shine. You all let it shine. But, but the light, the light, it's singular. In other words, you all are letting one light shine. So again, my translation, the way I would say this is, in, the, in this way, let the light of y'all shine in the presence of men. Like, we should be all drawing from the same source, the same light, letting it shine before men, before others. And that's what he says to do here. Look, we've been given the source of hope, of the source of goodness, the source of righteousness. We have him. Like, as the church, we have Jesus. We can know him and experience him. And we've been placed where we are so that we can let our good works shine before others. And that's what he says. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and think you're a really cool guy. Oh, somebody caught it. Most of you are like, yeah, I am pretty cool. Yeah, you should see the works I do. No, 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 that's not the point. He says, let your, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They should see Jesus in us. Whenever we do something, whenever we do good works... Yeah, we don't do them just so that the world can see us and be like, wow, you're awesome, you're so cool. No, no, we do good works before others so that they can say, okay, why do you do that? And we have the opportunity to say, you know what, because God changed me. Why do I want to better your life? Because God did something in my life that I couldn't do on my own. I thought maybe you needed somebody to help you too. By the way, did you know Jesus can save you too? We should do good works before others. Why? So that they glorify our Father. So they glorify God. Our job is multifaceted. We're here so that we can slow the decay of the world and be a light in the darkness. And we work towards illuminating the lives of those around us. So as Jesus followers, we must redefine our concept of blessedness, delay the decay of the world, and illuminate the darkness of the world. So what? Does your concept of blessedness need to change? Like... I'm not picking on anybody because I would have said the same thing. And I'm not saying they were inherently wrong answers, but I've talked to some people and said, how were things? Well, I'm, I'm blessed. Okay, but why? Where does that blessedness come from? Is that just something we say in church culture? Like, okay, well, I'm, I'm so blessed. And we get this warm, fuzzy feeling because I said the church answer. Or are we thinking about blessedness in terms of Jesus' form of blessedness? What he talks about is blessedness. Do we see things the way he does? Because if that's the case, we can even, whenever things are hard, we can even then, we can say, 
That was a lot of words for a very short sentence. Even then, we can say, I am blessed, even when things are hard. Why? Because we know that we have been saved by the God of the universe, and we can spend eternity with him. Because true blessing doesn't come from our circumstances or material prosperity. True blessedness comes because we follow Jesus. That's where true blessedness comes from. And then once we've experienced and we recognize that, that idea of blessedness, then we go on and we live as citizens of his kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, because we're submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. And at that point, we become salt and light to the world. We'll strive to live as he did. We'll strive to do like he did. Strive to do what he taught his followers to do. We'll encourage one another to live as his word calls us to live. And then, as a church, as y'all go out, we take that light to those around us and we try to illuminate a dark world. Look, we have the solution to man's biggest problem. We have the solution. Use it. Do something with it. Whenever we know the end of the story, which, if you haven't read the book, tells the end of the story, we know that we have a hope. We have a future. The question is, will we be faithful with the light we've been given now, or will we try to hide it? That's the question. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, um, God, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this sermon that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. Lord, and I pray that you would help it to shape us, that we wouldn't be content, uh, not just that you would help it to shape us, that you would cause it to shape us, and we wouldn't be content just going on as we are, but instead we would desire to know you more. We would desire to be the blessed person, the one who is, who is spiritually bankrupt, recognizing that we have no merit on our own. Instead, the only merit we have is Jesus and, and his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Lord, I thank you that we can have that hope because it's greater than any hope that we could possibly have on our own. Lord, I pray that as a church we would live in light of that fact and that you would send us out. Lord, both that you would draw us in, that you would help us to build one another up, but then you would also send us out and help us to be this light to the world. Lord, help us to realize we weren't given the grace, the kindness, and the mercy, the love that you've poured into us just so that we can hold it and, and be, be misers with it. Instead, you've given it to us so that we could share it with those around us. So, Father, I pray that you would, that you would send us out. Lord, and let us be faithful with the calling you've placed on our lives. Father, I, I thank you for the love that you've given us, for the unmerited grace that you gave us. Uh, Lord, just let us live in light of that truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.